But if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to the gospel according to Mark, the New Testament book of Mark. This morning, we will begin chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. One of my kids asked me this morning, I won't tell you who it is, I'm not naming names, but they asked me if today was Palm Sunday, and I had to share with them, no, it is not. So if you're confused, it's not Palm Sunday. We've still got a few weeks, but we don't preach by the calendar. We preach verse by verse through the book, and this morning, as we're going our way through the book of Mark, looking at Jesus as our king, we happen to find ourselves at Palm Sunday. So with all that in mind, we're going to read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there, said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Actions speak louder than words, right? If a young man gets down on one knee, you already know what is about to happen, or at least should be happening. Young men don't just haphazardly get down on one knee, all right? If you cut somebody off, they are not waving at you in the rearview mirror. Without saying anything, Our actions can say everything. And friends, that is what is happening on this first Palm Sunday. Jesus is not teaching anything about his kingdom, but he is teaching us everything about his kingdom. His actions speak louder than any of his words. Friends, as we visit this familiar passage with all of these familiar details, I want you to try to arrive at the parade for the first time and realize this truth. Without saying anything, 
Jesus says it all. And in order to understand the body language and the unwritten truth behind everything Jesus is doing, you have to look at these details closely. There's two events that happen on Palm Sunday. We're going to look at these two events. One you are ultimately familiar with. One I would assume most of us do not recognize at all. The first event that happens on Palm Sunday is the climactic approach to Jerusalem. The climactic approach to Jerusalem. We are going to read verses 1 to 10 one more time. Mark writes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt, tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that had, they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. I have to do a little myth busting before we get to work this morning. Have to expose some fake news that's been viral for a long time. And and show you some truth that has been hidden by all of these myths. This passage, maybe it's titled this way in your Bible, is always called the triumphal entry. But in fact, it is neither. This is not a victory parade. Jesus hasn't triumphed over anything. It's also not the entry. If you look at the passage, Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem until verse 11. This is, as Alan Cole writes, Jesus' approach to Jerusalem. This is his nearing the city. And so the title by itself doesn't really give us a clue to what is going on. There's two things that I've always heard taught, and I think you've probably heard these too, as kind of the main things to consider and think about and apply in our lives when we read the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. The first, the whole episode of the cult. I have always been taught that this shows Jesus knowing the future, and that he knew there would be a cult there, and he knew what was going to happen, and he sent his disciples out to to go get the cult, and it happened just the way it was supposed to. Maybe? But you'll notice Mark doesn't teach that, and neither does Matthew or Luke or John. 
No gospel writer tried to make that their point. So where did we come up with that? In fact, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus did not count equality with God something to exploit. He wasn't cheating his way to the cross, wasn't accessing all of his divine powers to make things happen. He went humbly as a man. If you read this passage in John, you'll notice that all of this happens right after a visit with a family who lives in Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And friends, it is equally possible that Jesus has prearranged all of these events with Lazarus or some of his friends in Bethany. Because when he gives them the code, the Lord needs it, the words, the Lord means something to these people. And so I, this isn't the point of Palm Sunday. That's not what Mark is teaching here. The other thing that we always seem to hear is that Palm Sunday shows us how fickle people are. Have you ever heard this? It's one of the uh, go-to quotes if you want to preach Palm Sunday. If you want to get a bunch of people excited and a bunch of amens, you can just copy and paste this into your sermon. I'm sure you've heard it before. That the same crowd who shouted Hosanna on Sunday is the same crowd who shouted crucify him on Friday. And all you have to do in a nice sermon based on this passage is to challenge the people in the room not to be that, who shout Hosanna and then leave the room and shout crucify. But if you study this passage, it is not the same crowd at all. Matthew is explicit about this. Matthew chapter 21, verses 10 to 11 When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds, that's the people shouting Hosanna, said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth Nazareth of Galilee. There's two different crowds. The crowd that shouts Hosanna is the crowd that's been in Mark all along, following Jesus in Galilee. They know something of Jesus And they're shouting Hosanna. The crowd that shouts crucify is the city of Jerusalem, who at this point in Matthew doesn't even know who Jesus is. They're from Jerusalem, the city of opposition. And so this isn't a fair point to say. Friends, I'm just trying to do some groundwork. What we think we know, I don't know that we really know. Almost everything that I thought I knew about Palm Sunday is either not true or it's not the point. For 10 chapters in Mark, the book that most of us have been walking through for months, Jesus has kept his identity a secret. When he heals people, he tells them, don't tell anybody. I don't want the crowds to know. And when the crowds start to overwhelm him, he ducks, he hides He doesn't want all of this attention. He teaches in parables, he tells us in Mark chapter 4, to keep the truth hidden. He doesn't want people to know what he's trying to say. And when he does teach clearly, it's always in private, often with only three or four of his disciples. But on Palm Sunday, all of the secrecy 
comes to an end. Palm Sunday is when Jesus goes public as the candidate to become king in God's kingdom. And it happens not through the words he teaches, but through a series of deliberate actions. As R.C. Sproul writes, Jesus is consciously choosing to fulfill prophecy. That's what's happening on Palm Sunday. Jesus is making a decision to walk through the Old Testament and say, this is me. And so in order to understand the parade, you've got to understand the promises that were made about the king. And so as we walk through this climactic approach, quickly I want to show you four ways Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in order to understand what Jesus is saying. The first one is the location. Verse 1 tells us that this happens at the Mount of Olives, which is a messianic key place. It is a buzzword in the promises about the Jewish hope of the Messiah. Zechariah chapter 14 shows us that Mount of Olives is the site of the final judgment. Verse 4 says, On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that no, one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Ezekiel had a vision about Jerusalem, the city, and the Mount of Olives. In chapter 11, verse 23, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. I could show you some more. But what I'm trying to convey here is when Jesus takes a pit stop on his way to the cross and ends up at the top of the Mount of Olives, it is not by accident. There's lots of places Jesus could have stopped to take a rest, but he went up the Mount of Olives for a reason. The second time Jesus fulfills prophecy is the ride itself. Verse 2, we see that he tells them to go find a colt. And you might not think that means very much, but friends, riding into Jerusalem by itself is important. They're joining all these people from Israel on their pilgrimage to celebrate the festival of the Passover. Here's the thing. No pilgrim rode into Jerusalem ever at any point. They needed to, to, to walk, to, to have the physical labor and, and the, the suffering of traveling to, to add meaning to this festival. And so the fact that Jesus rode in on a horse is, is saying something beyond the fact that Jesus never rides anywhere. There isn't another passage in this first coming of Jesus where Jesus gets on a horse or a donkey or anything for any reason. So the fact that he has decided to do something new is, is a signal that we should pay attention. Beyond that, Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, look, is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But it goes even further than that. 
all the way back to Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. In chapter 49, verses 10 to 11, Jacob is blessing his kids, and this is how he blesses Judah, in which Jesus will come into to play. Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 into 11. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garment in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. When Jacob is blessing his kids and chooses Judah as the one in which the covenant of God's grace is going to flow through, he just happens to mention 1,500 years earlier that this blessing involved a donkey's colt. Now, further down the line in Judah, when we get to David's first son, the, the king of Israel, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38, Solomon rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. So as Jesus rides into town, and he decides to ride, and he picks his ride, he means something. Third way Jesus fulfills prophecy. The red carpet. What red carpet am I talking about? The palms. Verse 8, though, you'll notice, look at how Mark describes it. In verse 8, they spread their cloaks, their tunics, their jackets on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. They're throwing whatever they can find. They're going out of their way to show honor, to demonstrate respect for a king. Kind of like the people of Israel did for another king. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. That's what's going on here again. The people of Israel are reenacting this royal acclamation as they lay down these palm branches and jackets to declare that Jesus is king. And, and obviously this is more about what the people are doing and not Jesus. But think about this. Actions speak louder than words. Every time someone in the book of Mark has tried to go over the top and express their allegiance to Jesus and recognize who he is, even if they start to get it right, what does Jesus do? He shuts it down. Be quiet. Tell no one. I don't want the Romans watching me. I don't want all of this hoopla going on. I don't want the praises. Not yet. My hour has not come. But what happens in Mark chapter 11 when the people go crazy with these palm branches and cloaks and start declaring through their actions their royal aspirations for Jesus? He lets it happen. Get on with it. Go crazy. Have fun. Declare what you want to declare. I'm not going to stop you. Jesus is saying something. Fourth time, he fulfills prophecy. The same is true. The shouts of praise. The shouts that the people declare in verse 9. 
Verse 10, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Do you know where that comes from? If you guess the Old Testament, you're right, and you're picking up on where I'm coming from. It's Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. The psalm says, save us, we pray, O Lord. Can we just stop right there real quick? Hosanna literally means save us now. Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, the second lyric they sing isn't from Psalm 118. This is where it gets cool and amazing. The second lyric they sing, they make up. They improvise to Psalm 118 to add to the song. And, And they sing a new lyric in verse 10 and say, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Now, as they sing that, they have all these promises about David in the back of their head. 2 Samuel chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to show you Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. God says through the prophet, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David as a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And so as as the people add this new lyric to Psalm 118 and, and, and say, blessed is this coming kingdom of David, they are praying for these promises to come true. Now, they don't have all the right ideas in their mind. They have this political party. They have this aspiration that Jesus is going to shut down the Roman government and and rule from, from his throne right here and now. And Jesus knows this. He knows the disconnect. He's seen it in his own disciples, and he shut them down. He's told Peter to get behind them because he's got these political aspirations in the back of his head. He has tried to keep people from getting the wrong idea over and over again. And even as these people create this new song lyric from Psalm 118, and they get the wrong picture in their head, what does Jesus do? He doesn't stop them from singing. He doesn't correct their false notions about the hope of salvation. He takes it in. Listen, if anybody took these kind of declarations about themselves, and they were not the king, and they were not the Christ, and they were not the Savior, they would be a false God. But Jesus takes it because when they sing it, it is true. And he knows. Jesus knows. Jesus knows what Ezekiel said about the Mount of Olives. Jesus knows what Zechariah said about the donkey. Jesus knows what the Psalm men in Psalm 118 And as he approaches the city, he knows that all of God's promises from Genesis to Malachi are coming to a climax. That all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled through him. Even in his silence, his actions are saying, you may not know what that means when you sing that, when you sing your heart out, but keep it coming. Declare your hosannas. Salvation belongs to me. I am the one who is here to fulfill God's promises for you. Brothers and sisters, you've heard Palm Sunday preached a thousand times. But have you ever stopped 
at the parade and just considered how amazing God is to fulfill every single promise through Jesus Christ? Or have we gotten so familiar with the story, it doesn't even amaze us that God keeps his word? The odds of of one man fulfilling one prophecy are so small, and yet Jesus fulfills them all. The road to the triumphal entry was thousands of years in the making, hundreds of promises in the making. And the point of the parade, brothers and sisters, is God makes good on his word. Now, can you consider that in your life? On this side of the resurrection, we've got all the more reason to believe this. Let me ask you, what promise from God are you waiting on? Where do you feel like God has not fulfilled his word? Visit this parade on the border of Jerusalem and consider who God is. He doesn't back down from a single promise. He doesn't say yes one minute and then change his mind. God is faithful to keep his word. Numbers 23, verse 19, Moses tells us, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Friends, I can promise you this. If God was faithful to keep every word and promise of the Old Testament through Jesus Christ, he will keep every word and promise in both Testaments through Jesus Christ for you. Take him at his word. Honor him as king. Sing your praises and hosannas to him because he is faithful. But there's another event in this passage. After the climactic approach to Jerusalem, There is the anticlimactic visit to the temple. The anticlimactic visit to the temple. We've got to look at verse 11. So you can see this. It's sneaky. Verse 11, Mark writes, And he entered Jerusalem, he entered, and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I realized this this morning. I've not been to a movie theater in two years. I can't imagine telling myself as a teenager, there's going to be a season in your life down the road where you're not going to see a movie in the theater for two years. I used to go every single Friday, at least. One of my worst experiences at the movie theater was Pirates of the Caribbean 2. Now, this was before all the Marvel movies and Star Wars movies took over, and Pirates was it. The first one came out of nowhere and blew everybody away. It was the hottest franchise in Hollywood. So when they said, we are making Pirates of the Caribbean 2, Everybody had to be there on day one. And so a whole gang of my friends got together on that maybe even Thursday night midnight showing to see Pirates of the Caribbean 2. 
And when it finished, the whole room groaned, disgusted. And we were so disappointed because it really didn't do anything. Because they were setting up Pirates of the Caribbean 3, which was coming out a year from now. So the whole story did nothing, meant nothing, and you had to go and wait a year to see what would happen. It was disgusting. Verse 11. Mark is the only one who writes this. And as I argued at the beginning of our series here, I think Mark wrote his first, which would mean Matthew and Luke definitely decided not to include verse 11. Now, you know why that would be? It's because like Pirates of the Caribbean 2, nothing happens, and you just have to wait. Jesus reaches his destination. He was aiming to go to the temple, and after this glorious parade, he's met with silence. There's no one even there. Absolutely nothing. Luke writes that at the, at the triumphal entry, On that Palm Sunday, the city of Jerusalem was on fire. It was so electric, Luke says, that even the stones were about to start singing to God. And yet, the finale of the parade, no one's there to see it. It is as anticlimactic as you can get. Jesus looks around the room, does nothing, turns around, and heads back to the village. Now, what's going on? Two things. First, it's setting up the next one. It's setting up Pirates of the Caribbean 3, which happens in the next passage. And for our purposes, we will visit in two weeks, which, hey, is a lot better than a year. But what's going to happen on day two is not random. This is setting up what happens on the Monday of the Passion Week, and chapters 11 and 12 are all about the temple. So if nothing else, this is just putting the ball on the tee so that the gospel writers can really get to work on Monday. But there's a second thing that happens. It reinforces an important truth about salvation and our faith in Jesus. I want you to stick with me. On Palm Sunday, this parade that's so amazing, Jesus fulfills all of these promises from the Old Testament. And if you really think about God's faithfulness, that's worth considering. But the triumph, as I said, over sin doesn't happen on Palm Sunday. The victory that deserves a parade doesn't happen until Jesus takes a parade out of the grave on Sunday. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus fulfills all of these promises as well. Go back to our old friend Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus came to fulfill that prophecy too. And he promises a spirit of grace and mercy. But let me ask you, have you mourned over your sin that caused him to be pierced? Have you considered that your choice not to make Jesus your king and not to cry Hosanna on your own led Jesus to the cross? If you turned from that life and that choice and those sins and cry out to God, save me now, he will pour his spirit of grace and mercy all over your life. And he will bring you into his kingdom. But friends, I know a lot of us have done that. And I think the temple verse should cause us to ask a question. If Jesus is our king, how much does he deserve? How much do you owe him? Friends, Jesus deserves more than a parade. He deserves more than your celebration. He deserves more than just a song. He deserves your entire life. Salvation in Christ isn't just, have you ever had a moment of celebration like Palm Sunday where you got excited and said Jesus is king? But is Jesus Lord over your entire life? And notice how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, a way that ties to this passage. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Friends, Jesus finds the temple empty, Because after the cross and the resurrection, the temple means nothing. We don't have any more rituals that will bring us to God. Baptism and the Lord's Supper won't do it. It is being united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And when that happens and that spirit of grace and mercy is poured on you, you become the temple. And Jesus lives inside of you. And if he's your king, your entire life, should be laying your cloak down on the ground, declaring the praises of the son of David, but leaving that parade and giving Jesus your all. The highs and the lows, the mountains and the valleys, from the parade to the cross to the empty tomb. Friends, without saying anything, Jesus has said everything. Let us pray.